When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is The Art of Charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. The Art of Charm is where ordinary guys become extraordinary men. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best minds in the industry to teach you how to crush it in life, love, and at work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise and packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a concise curriculum. We've created one of the premier lifestyle programs available anywhere, and it's free. This show is about you. We're here to help you become the best you can be in every area of your life. Make sure to stay up to date with everything going on here and get some great content and free products and books that we don't or can't share on the show by signing up for the newsletter at theartofcharm.com. If you're new to the show but you want to know where to begin or find out more about what we teach here at AOC, especially at our live programs in Los Angeles, you can go to the website and we'll email you a starter kit of all the top podcasts here on The Art of Charm. We'll also send you the fundamentals like body language, eye contact, vocal tonality, dating, attraction, business networking and negotiation, relationship management, and more. Pretty much all the stuff we'd wish we'd learned and mastered years ago. We have our live programs running every single week here in Los Angeles, California. In fact, we've got guys from all over the world on a regular basis. So if you think you're too far away, think again. Details on boot camps at theartofcharm.com slash bootcamp. You can also call the office or email me, jordan at theartofcharm.com. I read everything, and I'm looking forward to meeting you here at AOC. Today, of course, by popular request, as you can imagine, we have Alex Coots. He was the guy who did that famous infamous negotiation show so long ago we've i mean i can't tell you how much awesome feedback i've gotten on that i couldn't wait to have him back for something and of course when i said hey man what else can you do he said well you know i'm actually better at public speaking than i am negotiation and at that point i thought well damn if you're better at this than that then you need to come back we're going to talk about everything public speaking we're going to take it a little bit intermediate advanced though i don't want to do too much beginner stuff because i think you can find a lot of that getting you know getting over your fear of public speaking stuff online but we're going to talk about why the fear of public speaking is completely irrational how to own the audience right in the beginning how to keep people engaged what to do if you feel like you're sinking into quicksand body language on stage persuasion and skills to make your practice perfect so enjoy this one with alex coots Thanks for coming back, man. It's, let me just tell you a quick little story that I heard yesterday from uh, the guy coding the Art of Charm app. He was interviewing at another place. He won't even tell me over the phone, so God knows what that means. Uh, but he said when he was interviewing, they're like, hey, what sort of projects and stuff are you doing outside of work? And he said, oh, I'm, I'm coding an app for this company called the Art of Charm. She goes, wait a minute. I listened to this show about negotiation <laughs> and I got a 22% raise or like a 20% raise oh, baller. and now I'm in a promotion and now I'm interviewing you for this job <laughs> because she was in his job and she's now interviewing him for the job that she got using the sh stuff she learned on the show from you and I, oh. well, from you really, but I was there. 
I, you know, it's funny. I teach the class too, and I get a lot of people saying things like that, like they've negotiated their job, or like I just saved a ton of money on my car insurance right, by taking. Right. Like, and it's it's super rewarding, and it makes it worth doing. I mean, I don't teach these classes for the money. I do it because it actually makes a difference. Because like negotiation, unlike other things, is kind of changing the way you look at making an ask. Yeah. Which in a way is like changing your ability to like interact with other people and what you think you can get out of interactions. And oh man, it's just that's awesome to hear. It's cool, but especially because when I look at the amount of things that people are unhappy about in their jobs, like I, you and I could spend an hour making that list. And usually they can be solved by, I mean, sometimes it's like culture fits not good, but then you should leave, but why aren't you leaving? Well, it might be hard for me to find another job at this level. Well, not really. If you have this kind of skill sets, like you really, you can do that. And there's a another story that I, I'm going to use as a testimonial that I got in my email the other day. And I might be getting my numbers confused on the, on the raise. I think this guy got like a 20 X percent raise. And uh, he got another raise on top of that by listening to the show, having his, what is it, like quarterly or annual review, yeah. going back to his office and going, yeah, I should have just, I should have asked, well, I'll do it next time. No, I just learned this skill set. I'm just going to try this right now. Yeah. So he re-listens to the podcast again, just to like take some notes, goes to the show notes or whatever, goes back to his boss and says yeah. exactly what you'd said. Like, hey, I'm not trying to squeeze money. I just want to make sure that we're getting the value for my job here. And I'm very happy here. I love it. I just think, you know, it'd be great if you could ask, and I don't know the exact script anymore, Empathetic. but it'd, it'd be great if you could, you know, give me a little bit of a raise. It's commensurate with the highest levels. Based on what I'm seeing in the market, this is what I feel is worth. How do we get here? Help me understand. How do we it's, get here? And his boss went before, you know, usually they go, oh, we've got to talk to human resources. But she said, you know what? I'm totally going to help you with this. She goes, I'm just going to do some research. And he goes, actually... And he like slides over. I mean, he must have been such a baller. He slides over this paper that's like top market salaries for senior developers in Silicon Valley. Love it. And she's like, oh, and it's like 20 X percent more than he's making yep. as of that year. Right. Because it's like you grow and you get hit a certain threshold. And she goes, all right, 24 hours later, something like multiple tens of thousands of dollars more. I don't know what his salary is, but I would imagine a senior devs making high you know, one X, X hundred thousand dollars a year, if not more. Basically, he bought a really super awesome car that I saw. And I was like, damn, where did this Porsche come from? And he's like, you got this for me. And I'm like, well, I'll let Alex know that because he just basically was able to buy that thing with the cash in from a one year raise. I love it. I'll tell him where to send the check, by the yeah, way. That's exactly. great to hear. Or just another, you know, next year's Porsche. That's oh, great. It's not like like brain surgery where you have to be one of the best in the world in order to do it. Like, I mean, negotiations, everybody is so bad at it just by like making an ass, doing something like really easy that anyone yeah. can functionally do. It's not really a skill. It's just being comfortable making an ass. You, the entire world opens up to you. Yeah. It's just a big change. And if you haven't heard that one, we'll link up the negotiation podcast in the show notes for this one because people are going to be like, wait, what? And go back and listen to that too. Yeah, I just thought it was so funny that this guy who works with the Art of Charm gets hired by somebody who's not only heard of the show but applied what you taught yeah. to get this position that now she's in the position to be hiring my I friend. Love it. At least one girl out there who's used the negotiation stuff to great effect. And, and of course, the other guy from from the big company that I can't mention. Uh, nice. Who got multiple promotions, and oh, one was that huge one. Makes it all worth it. After the show we did, you said, well, I'm even better at public speaking. And I was like, <laughs> well, shit. You know, if you're even better at that, then then fine. And I had lunch with the friend who introduced us in the first place, and he was like, yeah, why didn't you have him on for that? That's where I saw him. He was doing that, and he was amazing. So here you are again, 
I definitely want to get into public speaking stuff, but not that beginner level stuff, not that that's not important, but I think people listening to this, there's obviously there's two camps, right? The people who are like, oh, public speaking, oh my God, no. But if they have to do it, they can go to like a beginner class somewhere and they can Google a wiki how on how to like, Envision the audience naked or whatever. Trick. Right, right. And and then there's other people who are like, yeah, yeah, I don't need that. And I don't want them to turn off the show because it's all for beginners. So this show is, let's say, intermediate, advanced public speaking. However, I think if you're a beginner, from what I've seen in the prep and what we talked about offline, there is a ton in here for a beginner to at least keep in mind. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Even if you're like, I'm never going to talk in front of people. This is terrifying. I avoid it, mm-hmm. which you shouldn't do. <laughs> I will say on a personal level, learning how to speak in front of an audience was super scary until I actually did it. And then I was like, oh, that's it. Because it was fun. Yeah. Now, I realize not everyone's going to be like that. I just, maybe I'm just like an attention whore. So when everybody's staring up at me like, oh, you're so smart, that's somewhere in my psychology. That's awesome. But that's why <laughs> I do this in the first place, probably. But I think for a lot of people, they'll find the same thing. Were you naturally good at public speaking? Were you like the guy who walked up there and was like, this is sweet? Yeah, you know, I think for me, I, I, I'm very lucky in the sense that I think when I talk. So talking is something that kind of comes naturally to me. I, mm-hmm. I come up with things as I do it. But I would say, I mean, throughout my life, I've always been doing it, but I've always been nervous. And my nervousness has gone down over time. But even now, like, and I teach on a regular basis, so I speak to large classes of people. I speak at conferences, I've been media trained, I've done all these things, done interviews on TV, I still get nervous every time I do it. I will, to the outside observer, might ramble a little bit, especially when I was younger, I would repeat things because I'm kind of checking it in my head. Yeah. Now, I'm a little bit more muted internally, which no one listens to the show would ever guess, but <laughs> talking does help me do this. Yeah. You could ask my girlfriend or, or AJ or anyone who works with me closely, my business partners and team at The Art of Charm, and I will sit there and have a conversation with those guys who, thank God, are the same way for three hours. It could probably have taken 20 minutes if we knew yeah. the destination before we got there. But like you, if we're brainstorming a strategy or talking about something, I might in the moment go, hey, what about, you know, if we do this? Oh, that's stupid. Wait, that won't work because of this. But we could do this and fix that way. And then we're like, that's what we got to do. Mm. I mean, it's like a brainstorming session Although when I'm speaking and presenting, hopefully people don't notice that I'm kind of doing the same thing. Like, yeah. how about this drill that I'm literally making up right now? Yeah. I think that's genius. And I think there's a lot of people that are still afraid of public speaking because of social constraints that probably would benefit a lot from doing it and learning it. Yeah. There's actually a lot of sociology and science and investigation in terms of why people are so terrified of public speaking. And some of the theories that in caveman days, if you actually had to present or be in front of a large group of people and they in some sense rejected you and you got kicked out of the tribe, you may actually die. Yeah. Yeah. There's a saber toothed tiger waiting outside the crib. I can't get kicked out because right. that's real bad. Sure. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of science behind it, but it's something that we can still overcome. Yeah. Especially now, because if a group rejects you, mm-hmm. it's what, like the Internet? Yeah. Or or like a group of people that <laughs> won't hire you again to come back and talk. Yeah. And even it, here's the great secret, right? Even if your peers at work, which are an important peer group, think, wow, that talk stunk, what they're also thinking is, better you than me, because I wouldn't have necessarily done any better. Or, well, we never really liked you that much anyway, so nobody's opinion has changed. You just embarrass yourself, but what else is new? But not only that, I mean, we're much harder on ourselves than other people are. And that's, that's just the truth of everything. And 
you know, when I'm public speaking, I'm extremely self-critical and I walk away with all these feelings of, oh, I could have done this better. Oh, I could have done that better. But chances are, no matter how memorable and good I was, the people in the audience aren't going to remember any of it 15 minutes after they walk out. Right. They'll walk away with like one or two things that you left them with and like a general impression. But that's about it. You've spoken at a lot of different places and you're a sharp guy. And I'm not saying that to embarrass you because you're sitting in front of me, but you are, I mean, you teach speaking, you teach negotiation. We've been through that. And you're one of the few people that I would say that I know personally where you're like, you coach professionals, but it's not like a BS thing you do because you're not good at anything else. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, I have an actual job. Yeah, you have. I do this because yeah. it's fun. Like and I people can. will bring you in and go, oh man, we, you should come in and teach us this. Yeah. And it's not, you're not like great because you wrote a book about that to sell your coaching ability. It's like, yeah. now I do other stuff using these skill sets. Exactly. There's unfortunately nothing I could sell anyone today that I'm pitching. I would love to be able to do that. I'm sure it'd be very lucrative, but I do have a full-time job and I do this because it's kind of convenient. There's a lot of people that I've talked to and worked with in the past who needed mm -hmm. some help and it's always kind of convenient for me to be there and, and provide some guidance. So I love doing it. Now, going back to what you had said about that you leave them with one or two things, I kind of want to touch on that as well because I think a lot of people kind of conflate being a college professor with public speaking, yeah. where it's like, here's 10 million things all written <laughs> on slides and you should copy them, or somebody who's advanced might just hand all those out, yeah. and it's like, here's all the things you learned, yeah. or that you will learn, and you have like a workbook that, let's face it, you're never gonna look at again. No, definitely not. I, I think the thing that, that everyone needs to remember is like, if, you're, if you haven't boiled down what you're gonna talk to to a very small number of things, and I recommend three typically, it's called the rule of threes, right? People always remember thing in threes. Past that, it gets kind of hard for them to remember things. If you haven't boiled it down to that, you haven't been reductive enough. So typically when I give a talk, I'll kind of do the information vomit on a page and then I'll start reducing it and boiling it down and boiling it down and grouping things into thematic concepts and then illustrate them through examples, but keeping it to three or very small number of things. We had a comic on here a few months ago named David Nihil. He's a friend of mine actually, and he's Irish, so he calls it the rule of tree. Yeah. <laughs> but it is, it is brilliant because you might be tempted to go, well, I need to knock this out of the park. So yeah. here are 15 just important concepts. Yep. And meanwhile, everyone goes, wow, you know, that Jordan guy, he was a good speaker. Oh, really? What did he talk about? Uh, um, uh, <laughs> you know, you get that. <laughs> yeah. And then it's like somebody has to jump in and go, oh, yeah, you talked uh, networking or there was that. And then there was like, um, anyway, who's hungry? Right. Yeah. That's how that conversation goes. Exactly. If it's three things and you get to illustrate them with examples, someone's going to remember, even if they don't remember all three, they'll yeah. remember one of these stories that you told where something yeah. was put into place, et cetera. And when you keep it to three things as well, you kind of open yourself up to one of the golden rules of, of public speaking, which is tell people what you're going to tell them, tell them what you're going to tell them, and then tell them what you told them. And if you have 15 things and you're doing that for 15 things, and God help the people in the audience, they're going to be people that die before you're done with the speech. If you keep it to three things, the repetition, the ability to hit things over and over again and really drive the point home becomes possible can't do that with 15 things. No, that's a good point. Uh, that wisdom, I don't know where you got the tell them what you told them, tell them what you're going to tell them thing. Is that, where is that from? You know, I, I think that's the punchline of about a thousand different things. It's one of those aphorisms we hear all the time, but we rarely internalize and don't always apply to the things we need to. No, you're right. An, an intern for Art of Charm told me that and I went, oh yeah. So I started doing the intro and the outro after the show and putting in like, today we're going to talk about this. And I do the same thing at the end yeah. so that people can recap. And I, I can't tell you how many emails I got like, 
I'm learning so much from your show now that you're yeah. recapping the information. Yeah, you connect it, you remind them. And not only that, it gives people a sense of accomplishment when they've actually finished like a podcast or a talk because they say, oh, yeah, I did go through those things. We did cover a lot today. That's fantastic. Yeah. And when I teach classes, I'll teach seven hour classes or three hour classes. And whenever I do it, I do it every single time. And I do it at the end of every unit of work that we go through. And it dramatically changes the value proposition for people sitting in the audience. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny how much you can learn and not know it. But if somebody tells you what you've learned, you're like, yeah, wow, that guy who taught me all that stuff is a friggin' genius. Yeah, absolutely. and uh, and hopefully that's how people feel after they listen to this. <laughs> so we'll see. <laughs> I want to give people some tips for becoming a little bit more comfortable and some real advice on crafting the story because it seems like the story seems like the central. Yeah theme of this. Whereas, again, the college professor thing is there's no story that sort of encapsulates it. And that's a problem for memory retention and, of course, application, which is the most important friggin' part of the whole thing. It is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so story time has gone back since the dawn of mankind. People love telling stories and storytellers have played a very important part in our history. So people are kind of pre-programmed to want to understand and follow along with an arc of a story, kind of a beginning, a middle part and an end, right? That conclusion. And there's a lot of different models out there for what stories should look like. But, you know, I think the biggest thing is take people on a journey. Understand the first thing they see, how that build con- builds context for the next thing they see, and kind of build on that as you move through your talk, driving towards some central conclusion at the end. And again, that can be three things, it can be one thing, but it has to be central and you have to take people on that ride and understand what they're feeling as they go through it. Do you make up the stories or do you look for examples from like history where applicable or are you just kind of using like metaphors when you do this? Yeah. So there's actually some great uh, there's some great teachers out there that teach public speaking. And one thing that you hear is a common theme is to kind of use anecdotes. Anecdotes and analogies are great ways to make people connect with the things that you're talking Mm. about, whether it's a relatable story that's somewhat self-deprecating about yourself, which is something that I use quite frequently because it makes me relatable to the Mm. audience. Uh, or an analogy to take a very complicated concept if you're giving like a technological talk and make it into something that, you know, someone at home without all that context could really understand. It's a great way to kind of open up and kind of set that tone for the rest of the talk. Awesome. Yeah, I think a lot of people when they communicate, they are afraid to use things like anecdotes mm-hmm. because they're like, well, nobody cares about how this applies to me. Yeah. And it is kind of conflicting because doing this show for the last eight years, I get a lot of email that's like, hey, you know, nobody cares about your version of the story. But then like 99 other people are like, hey, thanks for telling that version about how this applies to you. Because initially when I heard it, I wasn't sure where to put it. And now, you know, this makes a lot of sense. So maybe counterintuitive that especially people who aren't full of themselves, right? Mm -hmm. They don't want to talk about how this applies to them because they think no one cares about how this worked for me. Yeah. But we definitely, we do care. We only care Mm -hmm. about how this worked for you. Otherwise, where did you get it? Did you just read it online? Right. This is something that you would use. Why are you you a credible source? Right. right. Yes. Credibility. Exactly. You gave me this insane stat that there's 1.5 million presentations given across the world every hour. Yeah. And I've heard it mentioned a couple of times, but I think it's a very good point in that presentations are given all the time. And I think we don't always understand in our lives where the presentation is because we think people talking in front of 100 people at a conference constitutes a presentation. In reality, a waiter telling you your meal or the specials for the day at a restaurant is a presentation of kinds. They're trying to sell you on things. Yeah, that's true. A homeless person asking you for money on the street is a presentation. And believe me, if you don't think homeless people think about the message that they're they're saying before they give it to you, I mean, some of the guys in San Francisco 
are amazingly creative. I mean, they're using South Park and Simpsons quotes. I mean, they're they're using religion. They're invoking all these things oh, yeah. because they think they'll be effective. They're catering their story for their audience. Man, some of these guys are actually quite smart. I've gotten hustled a couple times, like in New York, before I lived there. Before I was really like what I would like to think salty and laser focused when it comes to BS. <laughs> but this guy, he had he had on a yarmulke, mm-hmm. which is like okay. Basically, without saying it, you're like, I'm a man of God, right? Yeah. It's like wearing a priest collar, except for that would be too much. Yeah. But a yarmulke is kind of like just generally I'm an Orthodox Jewish guy. Yeah. And he's like, listen, man, I'm stranded here. I live in New Jersey. The last train just left. And this is before everybody had an iPhone and went, no, this the last train is at 4 o'clock in the morning. It's yeah. midnight. And he just gave me this like not too hard of a sob story. And he's like, listen, man. I it's I hate doing this. I feel like crap. Like I, f- I feel such a loser. You know, I feel really scared. I'm out here by myself, and people are like, "Screw you, you dumb Jew!" Like, and I'm like, "Oh my god, that's terrible!" You know, and I'm, I can get home for like thirty bucks. I'm not asking you for thirty bucks, but anything you could even remotely help me with, I will mail it back to you, or I'll send it via PayPal or whatever you want. And I felt like spreading on okay. Thick. And I just I remember there was some more stuff that I can't remember, and both me and AJ were like. That's terrible, you know, good luck. And then we gave that to him, and then, like, ten blocks later, we were like, wait a minute, we're <laughs> never getting that money back. <laughs> we were a little bit drunk as well, that didn't hurt his yeah. case, but frankly, I mean, all of these subtle cues, he didn't go, hi, I'm a religious guy, and I'm very trustworthy, and yeah. I live far away, and I would love money, but you don't have to give me all of it, I'm willing to negotiate the amount that you give me for nothing in return. Yeah. And also, some sort of weird guarantee at the end. Oh, absolutely, he knew his audience, he right? Knew he knew your triggers, and he knew exactly how to play them up. He probably threw in PayPal, because like, that's a thing that like normal people do, right? That I would like, that would be totally fine and respectable. And like, yeah. all these things, he knew exactly how to trigger you, and you gotta do that in public speaking. If you're speaking at a conference, you gotta know exactly what's gonna trigger the audience. When I teach classes in product management here in the city, there's a lot of people who want to get into that that role, that career. What what is that? Uh, product management's kind of managing the the overall strategy of how like a startup, may, for instance, may build their website or may build their mobile apps. What features you build and when, what it looks like, things like that. But a lot of people that I teach want to get into that as a career path. So I know that's a trigger for them. So when I will make things relatable, I'll say, well, and this is a great thing to know for an interview because it's a common question. You may get immediate trigger. Immediately, they're going to remember it. They're going to pay attention. Right. That's when they start writing things down. Right? Exactly. Yeah. So finding out what those triggers are, whatever audience you're talking to, and even if you're panhandling on the street is a very effective way of getting people's attention and snapping them out of apathy. What's the process look like for finding the triggers? Like, let's say they're talking about like clothing design or like configuring email on your phone like i don't know how complex the topic needs to be but is there a way that you go all right i need to figure out what this audience's triggers are i go on what google i look at the attendees how do you do that so there's a couple different scenarios one is if i'm at a company where i'm working which is you know a very common public speaking opportunity for people uh chances are you know what's coming down the pipe in that company's roadmap right you know the things the trends the things competitors are doing all of those are emotional triggers right just your basic knowledge of the business and things that you know are important to executives. Uh, if I'm going to a conference, for instance, like let's say I'm going to South by Southwest this year and I want to... Which is right um, now, I believe. Which is so right now. So you're missing it. You better hurry. Yeah, you got to go now. Uh, so if I'm at South by Southwest, like there may be large thematic elements that are very much recurring themes that go through South by Southwest, right? So one year it was crowdfunding. Another year it's like geolocation services. Whatever those things are, a lot of people come because they're interested in finding out more about that topic. Maybe I hammer in on that. 
But also the way that I name my talk, if I'm giving a presentation in public place, draws in a certain type of crowd and quite frankly, pre-identifies people with certain triggers. So if I say like, you know, getting a job in technology is my talk, right? There's a lot of people who are probably desperately job seeking in the audience. And if not, there's a little child deep inside them that's desperately seeking for a job in technology. Right. Yeah. So the guy in accounting is like, Mm, I'm going to step into this one. Exactly, yeah. yeah. But it, it takes you kind of putting yourself in the shoes of the person you're talking to and really empathetically understanding what they're looking for uh, and really, quite frankly, what their fears are sometimes because yeah. those are very powerful things to trigger. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match. With Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash charm. Just go to Indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, back to it. Yeah, I, so even naming the talk, it sounds like even especially naming the talk is a great yeah. way to filter because if you're already speaking to a preordained audience of whoever, then you look for the trigger so that they pay attention. Oh yeah, right. Yeah. But if you're speaking to a general audience of whoever signs up for that talk, yeah. you might not want to talk about trends in the technological market of blah blah, blah like whatever. You might be exactly. like geolocation services, the future, or another bullshit trend in mobile or yeah. whatever. And like whatever they'll let you name your talk, <laughs> I guess. But yeah. you might get people who are like, oh, I'm strongly opinionated about this. Yep. I want to see what this joker thinks yeah. and then yeah. go and argue with him for an hour afterwards. To use an anecdote. On yes, this. please do. <laughs> I was speaking at a government uh, and technology conference in Washington, D.C. about a year ago. And there were all these like talks that were kind of posted, things like, you know, open data structures in government and, mm -hmm. you know, like involving the disenfranchised in government. And it was all these things that sounded like very official. And I was like, well, I kind of want to get a good showing for this talk. How do I have a name that's actually going to draw people in and self-select an interesting audience? So I titled the talk, Making Government Sexy. Yeah. Yeah. Which Making Government Sexy, eyes. right. Yeah, and it was an oversubscribed session. We really packed the room, and it was a lot of people looking for something kind of interesting, a little bit funny, a little bit interactive. Mm -hmm. It wasn't as though they'd gone to like an open data talk, so I pre-selected my audience by virtue of how I named it. That's actually brilliant, right? Because <laughs> you're basically, it's like a sign at a restaurant. Do you want a sign that's in black and white that says, 
we have fish? Yeah. Or do you want something that's like, look at Joe's Crab Shack. It's like yeah. neon, but it's also retro, and there's like an animated crab on yeah. it. Yeah. I saw one in SF, actually, not too far from here, uh, that had a sign that said, uh, pumpkin spice pizza. Just joking. You know you wanted it because you basic. I went in there and bought a beer because oh the sign God. was so brilliant. That is yeah. brilliant. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. <laughs> it doesn't even matter. Yeah, it doesn't. It's just emotional triggers, right? So it triggered me immediately. I don't want to be basic. I got to get in there. Basic is a trendy word these days, actually. I love it. Yeah. It's <laughs> awesome. So, yeah, I love the idea that the waiter at the restaurant tells the story, the homeless person tells the story, that your whole life is about telling your story. Mm-hmm. And either you do it well or you do it friggin' terrible, yeah. right? There, we've all had bad waiters where you're like, what is this guy's deal? I can't pry the specials out of this guy. You couldn't tell me that I could do this with this? You knew I wanted this. Oh, yeah. And a good server almost, like, reads your mind. They're selling you the stuff. They're not just reciting from memory the special. They're like, yeah. they're telling you something, and they're like, and then wait for it. There's, you know, truffle butter on it. Oh, like, yeah. You know you want that. Yeah. I'll be honest, there's, like, three left. I got to ask and see if there's any left. And when they say stuff like that, you're Mm -hmm. like, oh, crap, I didn't want that. But now there's only three left. I definitely want that. Yeah, a little bit of social proof, a Mm -hmm. little bit of other people want this. Scarcity. Yeah. Yeah. Want that truffle butter. Exactly. Exactly. So (laughs) the theme that I sort of wanted to communicate is even if you're like, I'm never going to publicly speak. Like Mm -hmm. It's a thing I never do anymore or I'm retired and I don't want to do it or I'm young and I'm going to avoid it. Ha 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 for my whole life. Speaking publicly is like the most effective means for communicating just on a day-to-day basis. Those basic skills you need for public speaking are invaluable. And, you know, the truth is you could be the guy in the room with the best ideas, but the best ideas not communicated do not exist. And if you're serious about like moving up in your company or something like that, you need to master the skills of communication, whether it's in front of a large group of people or a small group of people, public speaking, knowing your audience, getting over that kind of fear of rejection all these things are absolutely crucial to professional life. I think that might be one of the quotes we topped the episode off with, which is ideas not communicated do not exist. Yeah. Right. I actually got an email about this. I guess anecdotes are something we do often here now that I think about it. I got an email about this a few weeks ago that I planned on reading at some point with a company where she was. There's this guy who takes all the credit for everything. And, you know, he's always by the boss and he's such a brown noser and everyone hates him. And reading between the lines, what it looked like was I think he's probably a jackass. Don't get me wrong. You know, he's always taking credit for this and he's always doing that. It sounds like he's the only guy who's willing to go up to the boss and go, hey, boss, what do you think about this, this and this? And the boss doesn't necessarily think, well, Michael thought of this all by himself. He might even know that everybody else is involved. But if he's the only one talking about it, well, you know, he's he's the guy who brings it to the table. And if everybody has been thinking about it for five years and he got there in five months, he's bringing all these great ideas to the table. They're kind of his ideas. They are. You know? Yeah. I mean, possession is nine-tenths of a law, right? Something like that. Yeah. Like public public speaking, communication is nine-tenths of the ownership of the idea. Yeah. The person saying it is the one that owns it, quite frankly. And they can give attribution. But even if I say like, hey, you know, here's this idea. Thanks to Jordan for the great, you know, feedback on that. That's still me communicating it. Yeah. Even though you came up with the idea, mm-hmm. just the fact that I say it, even if I acknowledge you, I'm getting a large amount of that value, if not almost all of it. You know, there's... A lot of criticism of people like some of these nutrition guys or something mm. like that. They're like, oh, you know, this guy, all he does is package science. Well, that's <laughs> fucking brilliant. Yeah. All he does is read really complicated scientific stuff, go straight to the source, ask a bunch of questions, put it in a product that you can understand and then sell it to you. Yeah. You're welcome. Genius. Yeah. 
it's you don't have to be the guy who invented uh, Newton didn't invent gravity, right. but he sure as shit figured out how to tell everybody else about it. And now we know who he and is. now we know who he is. Why are people afraid of speaking in the first place? I mean, you sort of touched on this like evolutionary psychology and there's that old Seinfeld quote, right, that the average person, if they have to be at a funeral, they'd rather be the guy in the casket than giving the eulogy. Right. right. Yeah. Um, is this a rational thing that we can sort of like think our way through and figure out how to get around it? Yeah, uh, it's it's a great question. It's quite frankly one that a lot of people ask themselves. Um, yes, you can get around it. There's a lot of kind of ways you can think that kind of put yourself in a better situation uh, contextually. But the truth is, at the end of the day, like all things, practice makes perfect. Mm -hmm. The more you get in front of people, the more you learn your own triggers and what makes you anxiety ridden and the better apt you are to deal with it. And I'll give you an example. Uh, so for me, I know, and for almost everyone that I've talked to, the hardest part of public speaking is the first 30 seconds, the first ah, minute. Yeah. Yeah. So if you can get through that, like first, like really tough demilitarized zone, then you're in the free, right? Then you're in like the homeland, but you got to figure out how to get yourself through that period of time. So I personally use a lot of tricks for myself. So I will open up a talk with asking the audience about something. I will ask for a show of hands. Okay. So who in the audience knows what CPM means, like this acronym mm -hmm. for a conference? And okay, the audience says, you know, raises their hand. I'm like, okay, well, it looks like 30% of you. I'm going to give you guys a D minus. So immediately I'm judging them. I'm putting <laughs> me, myself in the power seat. They need my approval in some sense, even if they don't fully like it. Right. Maybe they don't find it hilarious, but most people will laugh because it's so direct. And I'll say, okay, now how many people know what this word means? Okay, that's pretty good. I'm going to give you a B plus. So there's a sense of like forward progression. They're feeling better about right. themselves and they're looking for my approval. And it takes the onus off of me having to create content because now they're thinking about what they need to do to oh, react man. to me. So you're, you're, wow, this is like a black hat type stuff here, man. Yeah. Yeah. It's super effective. And a lot of people, they launch into their content immediately at the beginning of a speech and they immediately lose people. Yeah. But if I put you as the audience on your toes and you think, oh my gosh, he may call on me for something. I got to really pay attention. You're going to be wired the entire talk if I keep doing it because you're afraid to not pay attention because you may miss something or you could get put on the spot. Right. And this is to sort of clarify. This sounds pretty arbitrary. Like you yeah. can ask about an acronym and someone's like, damn, I didn't know that. But then I'm like, why would I know that? Oh, it's, it's really never know that when I start my classes, I typically start with what's your favorite guilty pleasure? And I go around the room and ask people what their favorite guilty pleasure is. And I react to each one. And it's a genuine reaction. You know, some people will say, you know, like, why? Well, I, I really like Chris Brown music. And I'm like, oh, geez, that's oh, that's man. a real tough one to Security. defend. Security. Yeah, yeah that, that's, that's tough. But it's great because it just involves them, right? It makes them part of it. If it's fully didactic, that's a great word, a vocab word. Yeah, there. I'm not sure what that means. You want to clarify that? Like, just in case anyone of, else doesn't know what it means. That's right. It's fully kind of teacher teaching the class where the class is absorbing content from the professor right it's it's more difficult for them to feel invested in the flow because then they're really only judging the flow of information is this useful is this not but if i make it about them where they're participating and they're part of the talk now they own it now they're partially responsible for what happens and they feel that subconsciously even if they're not aware of it that's awesome that's that's a great that's a great idea. So you sort of take a poll, you ask a question, mm -hmm. and then you make a judgment based on the response to that question. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I do that also because the, the beginning of the talk is the toughest for me. That's when I get nervous, right? So when I'm bringing other people into it, it makes takes the onus off me. And the other great part about it is, and I've seen some people do this, they'll, they'll place elements like that a minute into the talk. Because maybe they get started and they need a little break. Their nervousness peaks and they're like, oh gosh, now I'm feeling it. I'm feeling myself begin to kind of sink into quicksand a little bit. I'm getting kind of nervous. Then I bring it about the audience again. I make it about them again. 
I pull the audience, I ask them a question, I ask someone to share an experience, I do something like that. That takes the onus off me, pulls me out of the emotional quicksand, and gets me through that rough patch. Wow, yeah, that is that is friggin' brilliant, and tactically, because it definitely follows what you know what's taught here at AOC. It's, obviously, you have to use this in moderation, otherwise I would imagine people are like, okay, this guy's kind of a D-bag. Yeah, it's not like what I go to a Drake concert and like he's putting the mic to the audience and they're singing every song. I'm like, I didn't pay 180 bucks to watch the audience sing Drake songs. I can right. do that at karaoke bar. Right. I want to hear Drake, like, you know, give me some terrible lyrics. Yes, exactly. Try to rhyme the same word with the same word. That's right. That's what I paid for. Right. Yeah. One of my favorite things to do is is leading with a fun fact. So let's say I'm talking about, um, you know, web design and development. I say, actually, did you know that like HTML was actually invented by such and such person? And if they'd like privatized that technology, they'd be worth more than Bill Gates. But they decided to open source it and make it free to the world. It's actually a true story. I can't remember the guy's name. But I'll lead him with a fun fact that's relevant to the talk to loosen people up a little bit, get them moving. Uh, sometimes also I will make up a completely fake story. And I'll say, you know, did you know that Kim Kardashian actually had a sword fight with President Obama on the lawn of the White House last week? Everyone goes, no, no, I didn't hear about it. I'm like, oh, it's because I made it up. Right. And I just kind of keep people on their toes. But I I do something that's kind of relevant. It's kind of for fun. It's like a joke, kind of dry humor. But it's very effective. Yeah. What happens when there's humor involved, right? Yeah. Psychologically, as people perk up, if everyone laughs and they're like, oh, crap, I'm not laughing. What's going on? Yeah. They get sucked right back into the source of the conversation. Right. Um, if you keep doing it, it gets cheesy and annoying, I would imagine. Yeah, humor is a really tough one. It's it's one that a lot of public speaking coaches will stay away from because most people just aren't really funny, especially when you put a yeah. spotlight on them, right? Yeah. So they'll say like, you know, don't make a joke. Whatever you do, don't do a joke because you don't know who's listening. I actually don't agree with that. I think it is a very risky thing for me to coach people to use humor in any sense, but I've very seldom been to a talk that was a great talk that I remember that didn't involve humor or some self-deprecation. There's safer avenues to take inside of humor. I'm not going to tell you to get up there and like make some culturally insensitive joke, <laughs> you know, about like the Irish. I'm partially Irish, so I can make those are the Greek. I'm partially Greek, so I could do that. But don't do that. But there are ways you can be funny that are a little safer. Incredulity is a great one. So be completely incredulous about something and kind of a funny way. Be exaggerative and say, okay, you know, the Giants, obviously the best baseball team in the world. Everyone agrees on that. I don't want to hear it. It's not a debate. Right. Obviously the best team in the world and move on. Like, that's me being incredulous. It's a little bit funny. It's a little bit odd. Right. It's not as dangerous as, like, a really weird joke. Yeah, it's not like an ethnic-based yeah. thing, and then there's, like, three people in the audience. I mean, you're right. You don't know who's listening when it comes down to really risky humor. Oh, yeah. But one time, literally seven-plus years ago on this show, we said something about Amish people. It wasn't terrible or whatever, but we're, like... Huge Amish we're to- audience. We're totally safe. Nobody who's Amish is listening. Right. We get an email like a week later that's like, hey, there's this thing called Rumspringa where Amish people get to go out into the world and do whatever normal people do. And I first, you know, found I got an iPod. I started listening to this show to help me adjust to mainstream social culture. Oh, my God. And I heard your joke about Amish people. And I'm totally not offended, but you should know that there's at least one Amish person listening to your show, yeah. even if I'm on a break from being fully Amish. Oh, yeah. And yeah. at that point, I was like, I'm never going to assume that there's an ethnic group that's not listening <laughs> because that's impossible. Yeah. It's it's tough. I mean, there's a lot of funny quotes you can use, too, that get you out of situations that can be rougher. Uh, one is like if my slides aren't working, like let's say the projector goes down or something. I'll say, you know, my father always said visual aids are a crutch for the inarticulate. I'm going to become articulate real quickly here. So bear <laughs> with me. Right. So I'll like make some quote that's kind of funny. It's an aphorism. It's an anecdote. 
uh, that gets me out of it. But in the age of kind of the digital world where what we say echoes in eternity and yes. our kids could theoretically watch it, you do really want to be careful with jokes in the sense that, you know, is it something your kid's going to find funny? Maybe, you know, hold off on the joke about ISIS. Yeah, there's ISIS. Now there's a group you can probably poke at. Yeah. If you're willing to die. That's um, right. That's right. <laughs> I do think about that when I do this show sometimes, you know, back in the day, I never thought about it. But now I'm like, oh, man, my 12 year old kid is going to find all this stuff. Yeah. And start secretly listening. Well, he's probably going to think I'm boring as hell, but my, maybe a younger version of that same kid. His and friends uh, will listen to it. Then yeah. they'll rip on him for it. And they'll be like, oh, you're dead in episode 94. Like 94. He's on <laughs> 1198. Yeah. What the hell's wrong with you? Why are you listening to that crap? Where'd you even find it? What's an MP3? Yeah. You know, they're going to find that stuff. And yeah. it's it's out there. And even when I co- go back and remove stuff that I think is really crappy from the feed, there's all kinds of ways people find it. And there's people that have more episodes of my show than I do that they saved because yeah. they're like data hoarders or something like yeah. that. I literally got people writing in and going, hey, I noticed episode whatever's off the website. I have a copy if you don't. And I'm like, that scares me. Can you delete that? Get rid of that. I removed that. I wanted that to go away forever. <laughs> what do we do if we're speaking and we just feel like, you know, we make our joke, no one laughs and mm. one person might even be like, boo, you know, or whatever right, in the yeah. back. What, and then we're talking and like we notice people get out their phones and like yeah. some people start getting up to go to the bathroom and never coming back. Yeah. What do we do if that if we find ourselves sinking? Yeah, that that's tough. And we kind of referenced that before with the quicksand aspect of, of falling into it. If people are beginning to if you're beginning to lose people in a talk, the best thing, in my opinion, is involve the audience. Kind yeah. of we talked to before and repetition, right? We're going to say the, the same things over and over right. again because we want people to remember them. But, you know, involving the audience, ask them for a poll. Um, and quite frankly, sometimes it's okay to make a self-deprecating joke, but if you make a joke and it doesn't land and it just kind of sinks and some guy's like, boo, yeah. and then someone throws like a cabbage at you because yes. everyone has a cabbage in their backpack whenever you public speak, everyone should know that. A rotten cabbage. Always a rotten yeah. cabbage. Uh, just move on. Move on as if it didn't happen. I paid a large portion of my, my grad school tuition playing poker. Uh, and one thing that I realized that was... That doesn't surprise me about you. Yeah. <laughs> I should have seen that coming. We'll do an episode on poker later, but right. it's funny, I mean... When you get really badly beat in a hand, you can either let it stick with you for the rest of the night and it will yeah. affect your play and That's you will what be I totally screwed, right? Yeah. Or you need to let it go and say, you know what? I played that the way I played that. It's a hand that's in the past. I need to move on. And the really good players can do that. The really bad ones or the beginning players can't. And it's a hallmark of being good at poker. Yeah, I can see that. They start to get emotional about like, man, oh shit, I just lost a ton of money. Yeah. I need to play a little bit riskier to get it yeah. back or whatever kind of thing, right? Because yeah. poker's all, is that, I would imagine it's like 99% just rational mathematical decision making or something. Yeah. yeah, I tell people I don't gamble, I play poker because right. it's a skill game. But yeah, it's just, and people start playing aggressive. Like say, I'm going to go after that guy, I'm going to get my money back. And it's always a losing strategy right. unless you get super lucky and you don't want to bet on that. Yeah, well, yeah, because then you're gambling. Exactly. Yeah. Back to Alex Coots. We create some space for ourselves, you know, making it about the audience, taking that poll, the show of hands, or, or what about if we can't think of a poll right away? I mean, can we just like call on <laughs> yeah. one person directly? Yeah, absolutely. So I've had situations where I'm, I'm teaching and I'll, I'll have uh, a subject that I want to illustrate and I'll say, you know, in your life, like when you have to negotiate something, like how did you feel ahead of time? And I'll go to one person. I'll say, just give me one word. How did you feel? And they say, nervous. nervous and I go, okay, yeah. great. Okay. I go to the next person. How did it make you feel? 
great. Okay. How did you feel afterwards? How did you feel? And I go to the next person after that. And I make it about them. And I'm having a one-on-one conversation with people in the audience. And I'm moving from person to person. And that general tactic is another great way to get away from some of the stage fright. Yeah. Because if I feel like I'm talking to 100 people and being evaluated by 100 people, or I can focus on a couple small groups of people in the audience, one person at a time, move on, one person at a time, move on, it feels much more like I'm having a conversation. Right. So I don't really describe any of that, you know, imagine people naked nonsense. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Like, imagine everybody in their underwear. Yeah, I mean, you know. No, unless you have a podium in front of you, I don't recommend you think about naked people when yeah, you're on stage. But no kidding. <laughs> you want to specifically have that conversation, form a connection with people in the room and read them, quite frankly. And the other benefit of that is other people in the audience see you connecting with someone in the audience, one of them, and it makes them more related to you. Yeah, I so can see that. So it breaks through this, like, let's say breaking the fourth wall. When you do that, everyone identifies with it. It makes them feel like you are much, ev- much more an even playing field. It engages them. Another great way. Yeah, instead of them watching essentially a live television program that they may or may not approve of and can't change the channel on, now it's like, boom. Yeah, it's like, oh man, Disneyland, how old are you? 29. 29, so yeah. you probably don't remember this, but back in the day, Disneyland or Disney World or whatever had this like, Yoda comes out, you're wearing 3D glasses <laughs> at Disney World, and Yoda comes out and he's like, all right, forget about everybody else, and I'm only talking to you. Mm. And of course, everybody sees the exact same thing in their 3D glasses. Kids start peeing their pants. But kids are like, oh my God, yeah. Yoda is only talking to me. <laughs> you know, it's amazing. It's a, and it's a freaking brilliant device yeah. because with that technology, you can literally tell everybody, I'm only talking to you, forget everybody else. Yeah. And they're right back into it. I mean, it's, yeah. it, whereas they before were just like, wow, asteroids. Now they're like, yeah. oh my God. And it's amazing actually because the HD quality on actually pe- speaking in front of people and the 3D effect is unbelievable. It's, it's almost must, like yeah. you're right there. It's almost like you're right there. I'm only talking to you. <laughs> and it's like, damn. That's right. Almost looks real. Speaking of being up and being evaluated, I mean, body language, we mm. talk about a ton on this show. I mean, it's the, one of the fundamental things that's taught at AOC. Yeah. We obviously need to be mindful of this. Does it change between having that conversation with one person versus the whole room? Because I I feel like some speakers kind of overdo it, and they're like, Superman on stage. And then other people, they're like, oh, crap, I'm really nervous. So they're like, hide behind the podium and sit down at a chair on stage and shrink up a little bit. You know, there's there's kind of like good speakers seem to be really confident up there, but they're Mm. not like overdoing it. Yeah. You know? Yeah, body language is massive. I mean, there's a there's a rule called the 738.55 rule. Wow. This, Good yeah, luck remembering 738, that one. 738.55. 738.55. By this guy, Professor uh, Albert Morabian. And basically the idea is that words only convey 7% of your meaning. Mm-hmm. Vocal expression and kind of intonation and inflection is about 38%. And body language is around 55%. So the most dominant form of what you're doing is your body language. And what you're doing with your hands, what you're doing with where you're walking... And everyone always makes that joke. I don't know what to do with my hands. One of my favorite references is is Bill Clinton, actually. Mm-hmm. Bill Clinton, when he was a young orator, was had these horrible issues with pointing at the audience. Uh, he would take his index finger and he would point at the audience, sometimes with both hands mm, when he was talking, yeah. which is extremely confrontational yes. and like very angry. So he worked with all these coaches that basically changed it so that he was close. And they couldn't get him to stop moving his hand forward towards the audience. So they kind of got him to contract his index finger into a fist and put his thumb on top of his hand and hold his hand kind of vertical and go like this, kind of move his hand towards the audience. That's so weird. Yeah, so he's not pointing at them. So when you see Bill Clinton do this, kind of with his thumbs up uh, on top of his fists, 
he's actually been coached to do that. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, because his body language was too confrontational. He needed to be a little bit more conciliatory. What do we do with our hands now that I think about it? I mean, that's one of the that's one of the questions. Yeah. About the original questions of public speaking. How oh, yeah. what do we do with my hands? I never do. I never know what to do with my hands. Yeah. Everybody says that. Uh, so there's a couple of things not to do. Let's let's get those out of the okay. way. One is the fig leaf. So that's kind of the crossing leaf? your hands. Yeah, uh, crossing your hands in front of your body I over your you waist. There. Right, covering your groin. Covering your groin. Yeah, it's it's a it's what's called a closed gesture. It's mm-hmm. protective and it's self soothing. Right. It's like it's like if you're sitting and you've got your arms crossed. Exactly. That's another great self soothing one. If I if I cross my arms or I rock back and forth or I'm rubbing myself in any way or I rub the back of my neck, mm. all of these are tells. If you're playing poker, right. that the person is very uncomfortable that they need to soothe themselves or protect themselves. Don't do that. So I wouldn't say keep your hands at your side because you look like Frankenstein and that's weird. Right. Uh, I always kind of move my hands in context to what I'm saying. Okay. So one that I'll do is um, I will actually kind of make my hands flat. So I kind of I'm making like a high five motion and I'll put them in front of my body like so. I'll move them in accordance with whatever I'm saying. So I use my hands to accent the things that I'm saying. And if you're Italian, you actually do this naturally. Right. And you can watch Italian people. They have the most like expressive, wonderful body language that accents everything that they say. And they move in the direction of what they're saying. So if I make a strong point, I move forward. And my body language, my hands, my body is moving towards the audience. If I want to react, sometimes I'll move back and I'll be uh-huh. thoughtful and I'll think about it. But I'm not moving constantly. Some people kind of rock in motion and they'll walk in small circles or they'll move back and forth in a line like they're wearing a line in the stage. Uh. And they need to avoid that because that's, again, self-soothing. So use body language to accent the things that you're saying. You don't want to be overly dominant and aggressive by moving towards people, pointing, like using fists, being way too aggressive. You want to kind of step back a little bit and be natural, but accent with your hands. So it's like, yeah, so it's like the the bad example I'm conjuring up is the sort of like southern television preacher guy who's yeah. like, down on one knee and like pumping his fist down like uh and god yeah yeah, yeah exactly yeah well done <laughs> exactly or like tom cruise on oprah yeah, where he's like way couches. too intense yeah and then there's the the reverse of that which is like the ferris bueller teacher who's just kind of like muted n- almost no body language bueller bueller yeah. anyone um and we want to be somewhere in between that but avoiding the protective body language the I think they're called like placative gestures or something yeah, where you placating. like, yeah. yeah, where you kind of like touch your, you know, you're rubbing your earlobes over and over or yeah. like whatever, keeping your arms crossed. I've gotten a lot of coaching on public speaking and I've gotten a ton of just terrible advice mm-hmm. from people who teach this professionally, like keep yeah. your hands at your sides. And I remember even when the teacher was doing it, she was like an older lady. Mm. I was like, she still, she looks weird doing it. Yeah. So if I do it, I'm going to look really bizarre yeah and i couldn't help but think there's no way this is the real tip they just don't want ridiculous gestures from people who are newbies at public speaking because you when you watch real speakers they never have their hands just drop to the sides no like they don't work that's super weird it's super weird yeah i mean one of the best tips i ever got and i i got this years ago I, i had my first round of media training which means a company hired a guy to come in and basically teach me how to be interviewed on TV. So awesome. Yeah, I've done this a couple of times and it's, it's quite fascinating. I have some great anecdotes for that another yeah. time. Uh, but one thing they always do is they videotape you. Mm-hmm. So this guy set up a conference room in my company and had real lights and an actual cameraman he paid to be there who was videotaping the whole thing, seats, makeup, the whole deal. And I walked in like coming off my lunch break, not knowing what's going on, like I was thrown into an MSNBC interview. So he sits me down and 
starts going through questions and asking me and videotaping the whole thing. And at the end, he goes, okay, great. Puts the video up on the screen. And I just had to sit there and watch myself talk. And it is amazing what you will pick up when you have to watch yourself speak. Most people do all these weird things speaking because they've never seen themselves. They don't know what they're doing is affecting their message in certain ways. That's very true. I used to edit this show and it was brutal. Yeah. And the reason I did it is because AJ, my co-host back in the day, he couldn't even listen to his own voice without just like massively cringing. Yeah. I kind of suffered through it and edited it. And I don't do it anymore because of a time factor. Mm -hmm. But I learned much more about communication. And whenever people ask me, like, how do I get better on the mic? I'm like, yeah. edit your own show for like a year. Yeah. And you can leave the production crap, you know, up to an engineer and the mastering and all that, but yeah. edit out all your ums and uhs, yeah. and you won't do them at all anymore, oh, because yeah. it's a huge pain in the neck. It is, and it makes you very reflective. There's certain things that you do with your eyes when you think about things. There's certain things you do with your sentence structure when you're not sure of what you're saying. A lot of people, for instance, with their inflection, will come up at the end of a sentence. They'll say, and then we're going to do this thing because it's going to make a great impact on the business yes at the end of their sentence that communicates an utter lack of confidence of what you're saying yeah the vocal tonality that you yeah. have we actually teach this in our boot camps where it's like if you punctuate yeah a statement with a question mark mm -hmm. at the end non-verbally or verbally tonally yeah you're in trouble unbelievably so the 73855 rule mm -hmm. that 38 percent is my vocal inflection mm -hmm. when you watch a tape of yourself you actually have to listen to it as if you're yes. listening to someone else and it is terrifying right because you're not only are you doing that thing where you judge other people but yeah. you're judging yourself which is 10 times harder than anybody else would judge you yeah so if you can get it to an acceptable level where you're still sort of cringing but it's not awful yeah. other people are like damn that's polished absolutely so videotape yourself and maybe hire somebody to do it if you don't want to worry about figuring out how to make it happen. I mean, yep. you could set up your friggin' iPhone with one of those little tripods and just oh, yeah. film yourself giving a talk. Use an iPod. I mean, most most laptops now have webcams. and You can just set it up, stand across the room, give your talk. Um, it's just, it's a massively helpful tool. Most people don't do it. And I can guarantee you that every single person you've seen that's amazing at public speaking has watched themselves on video one or multiple times. Every speaking class I've ever done has always videotaped you. Yep. And when they play it back, yeah. it's always stuff. Oh, your hands. Oh, you're talking too quickly. That's my thing. I'm like motor mouthing it. Yeah. You can't rationalize away a video. Yeah. You can, Yeah, exactly. You can't say, no, I think I was pretty good on that one. Yeah. You listen and you go, holy crap, I'm talking <laughs> fast. One of the things that I thought was awesome when we talked about this offline you reward people for good behavior. And yeah. I'm like, that was the thing where I was like, okay, I'm gonna get emails about this when we talk about this. People are gonna love this. It's gonna be like the one thing that people really just grab onto. And I was like, I'm doing this. I'm gonna keep something in my pocket for this. What is that? Tell us what this is, because this I love this. Yeah, so you have to train your audience to kind of do what you want them to do. And you have to train them to respond to you in a way that's positive and reward certain types of behavior that are good. So when I talk, for instance, I tell people at the beginning of, of whatever speech I give that nothing makes me happier than questions. If you stop me in the middle of my talk and raise your hand, nothing will make me more excited than questions and tangents. Take me on them. This talk is about you. I want you to get out of this, what you want to get out of it. Please, I'm begging you, ask questions. And when they do, and I'll say, you know, anybody that asks a good question, you're going to get a Skittle. Skittles being the best candy in the world. Everyone knows this. It's not up for debate. Yes, great question. You are going to get a Skittles thrown at you at a moderate velocity. <laughs> So nice. I will say, I'll say, this is what I want you to do. I'll say, this is the reward. And then when people do it, I will throw them the thing. And 
Skittles is so ridiculous. It, right. Even the word Skittles sounds ridiculous. It does. It's just a funny thing. And the more ridiculous the thing that you give them, the better. Like if you're giving a talk on entomology or something like that, bugs, give people like a fake fly or something. Fake Say, fake yeah, bug. you're going to get a fake bug every time you ask a great question, right? Like something that's it's tied into your talk. Skittles is universally applicable. You could do that if you were negotiating a peace treaty at the UN. Everybody's going to get it. I just love Skittles, but... It's just, it's a funny thing. It gives people that kind of little hit of dopamine, right? I'm going to yeah. ask a question because I'm going to get something out of it. Other people right. are going to see someone getting something out of it. It's going to be ridiculous and fun and something they'll remember. But when you give a talk, how many times do you kind of use this device during your speech? I mean, you don't have like 10 bags of Skittles in your pocket for every talk, or do you? No. Well, and quite frankly, I'll, I'll rarely even use Skittles. Sometimes I'll do high fives. I will literally get off the stage and I will go down. Unlimited high unlimited fives. Unlimited high fives. I typically carry at least an unlimited amount. Yeah. And I will go down and I will high five the first person that gives a great question. It's a super weird thing to do. Yeah. People are like, what is he doing? This is kind of crazy. And it kind of breaks that wall between the audience and the speaker and is just immediately relatable. Uh, so Skittles, high fives, whatever it is, bugs, whatever is your thing. Yeah. Extremely useful. That's phenomenal. I love that. And you can probably order some dumb crap on eBay or on Amazon, yeah. like a whole bag of like buttons that, you know, that people pin on that say like, I asked a question or yeah. something with like a cartoon guy. Yeah. I, honestly, the more ridiculous, the better. Yeah. Give people fake eyelashes. There you go. Yeah. Fake mustaches for quite. Oh, I, I wanna, I'm going to stop giving away all my awesome Ooh, ideas. I like that. Yeah. yeah. Keep that on the download. Stick on mustaches. Excellent. Yeah, I think people will always love the freebies. People will talk about the freebies. People will be wearing the fake mustaches at mm -hmm. the bar later that night, and people will go, where did you get that? Alex Kutz gave a talk, yeah. and he gave him away. Jordan Harbinger, this guy, I can't remember what the hell he talked about. He wasn't that good, <laughs> but I got a fake mustache from him. Right. So we're inviting him to the wedding. I got a number one dad mug. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thrown at my head at a moderate <laughs> velocity. <laughs> Could be dangerous. Yeah. It's got to be something that if it impacts somebody, then it doesn't yeah. do too much damage. Actually, another guy who's been on the show, Nev Medora, I saw him at this uh, conference called HustleCon here in the city. And he, he was like, there was a slide he had because he uses visuals. And at the bottom of the slide in smaller white font, it said, the first person to bark like a dog will get a copy of my book. So this girl <laughs> stood up and start, or stand up and bark like a dog. Yeah. She stood up and barked like a dog and he <laughs> threw a copy of his book at her and it <laughs> clocked her right in the face. <laughs> so I was like, wow, that's such a good idea. I'm going to hand the book yeah. to somebody else to give. Maybe get a runner. To her. Yeah, get a runner. Because <laughs> it was lucky that it didn't like do something where she had to like go to the restroom and find a contact lens or like, yeah. you know, go to the hospital. Stop the bleeding. Yeah, stop yeah. the bleeding. I mean, <laughs> And it was a girl, too. So she get, gets, not only does she get up and start barking like a dog to get a free copy of the book, she gets clocked directly in the face. Yeah, that, that's a Twitter <laughs> storm you don't want. Yeah, no kidding. What about visuals? I mean, you hear stuff from coaches that's like, you know, oh, yeah, you've got to have visuals, but you don't want to have tons of graphs and data on the slides. And then yeah. other people are like, never use visuals yeah. at all. And I'm kind of like, if I can get away with not using any visuals, I love it. Yeah. Or if they're like, yes, you need visuals, I'll just choose like images. Yeah. Maybe even have nothing to do with what I'm talking about or like tangentially have yeah. something to do with it. Like a, I have a photo of Spider-Man getting arrested <laughs> and I can't remember what I use it for, but every time, because yeah. it's the Hollywood Boulevard Spider-Man who's like a junkie right. in a Spider-Man pajamas thing. Right. Whenever I show that photo, people are dying, right? So it keeps them engaged, and they're like, what's the next one going to be? Oh, it's a baby smoking. That's hilarious, you know, yeah. or something. What's your stance on 
using slides, using visuals, all, sometimes always never. Yeah, I would say always if you can. Uh, and I, I, I'll caveat that with a couple of things. Um, people think about slides the wrong way. They think slides are content for your speech. In reality, they're not. Slides are an augmentation to what you're doing. They're supposed to make your message more interesting, more relatable, more understandable. So I'm talking about data. It makes sense I'd want to show a graph, right? Or maybe some numbers. Uh, but it's not meant to replace your talk. It's not meant for people to read the slide and get the value they need from what you're saying and not have to listen to you. Right. That's yeah. a fail. So a lot of people have rules like five by five, meaning you should have five lines on a slide, no more than five lines, no more than five words per line. I think that is grossly overloading a slide. For me, I'm much more similar to you. I have one full bleed, full bleed beautiful high-res image, and then I have one word overlaying it. Okay. Yeah, so it's like, you know, a big picture of Spider-Man getting arrested right, with a yeah. word over it saying, you know, crack, not even once. Yeah, right. right so yeah. it's like something to, like, accent what you're saying. Um, I will actually quite frequently have a blank slide with just one word in the middle of it and then one image that's somewhere on the slide, maybe not full bleed. Uh, so for one point, as an example, uh, when I teach one of my classes, I'll say, you know, if you're managing a team correctly... You should be uh, an umbrella for bad things, not a funnel for it, right? And I'll use okay. an expletive for the bad things. But I'll have a picture of an umbrella on the slide, and it'll say umbrella, not funnel. That's it. Right. Oh, I, uh, yeah. yeah, and I get it. Yeah, super yeah. simple, augments what I'm saying, adds to it, makes it more relatable, and gives someone something visual to tie what I've just said to so they can remember it more easily. Yeah, oh, brilliant. Yeah, that's great. So not the data Yeah. and not, you know, inspirational memes or whatever, uh, but definitely just something to tie the, yeah, to tie the idea to something visual so that it's a little yeah. bit more visceral for people to. Yeah. And, you know, a great anecdote to yes. use anecdotes again is, you know, every public speaking teacher, when they're talking about slide design, normally uses the worst case example of uh, the challenger explosion as a great failing communication. Because in that situation, there was a team of engineers who actually knew the exact problem with the vehicle. Uh, and it was an O-ring problem that was like a sealant for a fuel tube or something like that. And they communicated this problem in a slide that had hundreds of words on it. It was a paragraph slide, chock full, all the way to the edges with nothing but text. And they tried to communicate the gravity of the issue, but it was so impossibly communicated. It was so set up for failure that it didn't adequately get the message across that this is something we need to fix. And as a result... We had the challenger strategy. Oh, man. So a lot of public speaking teachers will use that as an example and say, don't do this. Don't give a slide that's so chock full of content that no one can understand what you're talking about. Right. Yeah. People miss the forest through the trees. Is, or, is that the proper? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Something like that. Sounds good. Awesome. Thank you so much, man. This is super helpful. I mean, it's exactly what I expected from you. My pleasure. But I think we're going to get a lot of people throwing Skittles at people. Um, <laughs> and that's really why we did this in the right. first place. So where can people find more from you or is there more from you? Yeah, so you can follow me on Twitter at uh, Acoots. If you're in the Bay Area or in New York, I teach classes in several of these types of issues, net negotiations, public speaking, stuff like that with General Assembly. Perfect. So feel free to look me up. Excellent. We'll have the Twitter linked in the show notes as well and we can link up General Assembly. Is there a link directly to your class on there? Yes, uh, on Twitter as well as my company. Oh, okay, perfect. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. Such a fascinating episode. Cannot wait to hear the feedback from this. You guys got so much in here. Changing the power dynamic, making yourself identifiable, rewarding people for good behavior, ways to practice and videotape yourself for the utmost highest level of success in public speaking. And of course, some good old body language and vocal tonality mixed in there. Thanks so much, Alex. Great job as usual. 
What else can he teach us? That's what I want to know. Show feedback and guest suggestions. The show's a fanarchy. It's run by you. We rely on you to help keep our finger on the pulse. So if you know someone who's a good fit for the show, let us know. I'm Jordan at theartofcharm.com. And if you enjoyed this one, don't forget to thank Alex on Twitter. We're going to have that linked in the show notes as well. Bootcamp details for our live programs at theartofcharm.com slash bootcamp. And remember, subscribe to the show on iTunes or Stitcher. We've also got our iPhone and Android apps available at theartofcharm.com slash iPhone and slash Android. And you can help us out by writing a five-star review in iTunes and putting even just one sentence helps us rank higher so that people who can use this information can find the show more easily to get the credible advice that they need. It's also the best way to support us other than purchasing products and training from The Art of Charm. Special thanks to the Jasons for their help in production of the Art of Charm podcast. And tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. Now have a great week and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to the Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and everything for the extraordinary man at theartofcharmpodcast.com. 